Greetings and welcome to episode 22 of Beyond Huasia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a very unique topic. We're going to be discussing modes of travel in pre-modern China. Who traveled, where did they go, and how did they get there? Now, this is a big topic, and we need to try and break it down into some more manageable categories. So we're going to be thinking about modes of travel as they're reflected through the prism of class, gender, and culture, or ethnicity. Okay, how people who were of a certain gender or a certain class or of a certain ethnic group might have traveled differently than people of another. All right, now class, when we talk about class, really what we're talking about is the means, you know, the wealth, the means of access to wealth that allows you to be educated because social mobility very often in various Chinese dynasties depends on your ability to raise sons who are going to be able to pass a civil service examination system. All right. If you've made money as a merchant, your goal eventually is to invest your, some of your profits in educating your son. All right. So most of the elites from a class perspective are distinguished from other people by their education. All right, their ability to write and leave records, written records for future historians to discover. Okay, so when we talk about travel and our understanding of who traveled and how they traveled, one of the first things we have to understand is that almost all the records of travel that have been left to us were written by the elites, all right, the people who actually had the means of writing things. In the last episode, we talked about those Confucian scholars who basically, um, you know, denigrated the Zhenghe expeditions and controlled the interpretation of those expeditions for many centuries because they had the power of the brush, all right, the power to create the historical records. And in travel, that distinction is no less important. Okay, the sort of elites who traveled are going to be of two types, religious elites and secular elites. Now, among the secular elites, what we're talking about, uh, I don't know if secular is quite the right word, but definitely not, you know, Buddhist or Taoist and whatnot, the Confucian elites, okay, those who aspire to enter the civil bureaucracy, Okay, they're the educated people who are going to travel from post to post throughout the empire. All right, and they travel a lot. If you actually work for the government, you travel a lot during your career. All right, constantly being posted uh, from different um, province to different province. In the religious sphere, you're going to have religious practitioners. Monks and nuns and priests and priestesses. Okay, they will travel a lot too on pilgrimage, to visit other monasteries, to carry out acts of charity, whatever it might be. Or maybe it's the Buddhist monk Xuanzang traveling to India to get Sanskrit sutras to translate back into Chinese. Um, they're going to have the ability to leave written records as well. So most of our written records of travel come from Confucian elites who worked for the government most likely um, or had literary interests where they would visit famous mountain peaks and write poetry and this sort of stuff, um, poetry about their travel, or it's going to be religious practitioners, okay? Now, the educated elites will always be interacting with the literature that previous travelers have left before them, okay? Every single time a Confucian elite goes somewhere, travels to a new city, travels to a new province, visits a sacred mountain, okay? He is going to be engaging in self-conscious, textual, and historical immersion of the landscape that is communicated to him 
by previous literate travelers like himself. All right, when they go to Mount Tai, one of the, the you know the five sacred mountains of the East Asian heartland, when when, it, when he goes to Mount Tai, he is going to constantly be saying, "Here is where uh, a Han Dynasty poet said this," or "Here is where a famous official committed suicide in protest of his emperor's decree." Or his, you know, his, his his ill treatment at the hands of his rival, something like that. Or here is where the Tang poet Du Fu uh, composed a famous poem. They will always be interacting in a literary sense with the landscape through with through which they're traveling, and the educated Confucian elites will also say. My mode of travel, the way that I travel, the things that I do, embodies my moral, or in the case of religious practitioners, my spiritual progress. Okay, Buddhist monks and Confucian elites will say that everyone else, merchants, peasants, whoever it might be, everyone else travels in an unthinking, reflective manner, purely for profit or unlofty aims. Okay, they're out to make money or do something sinister that they shouldn't be doing. But we, the educated people, the monks, the priests, the civil servants, the landlords, when we travel, we have a high moral purpose. We're cultivating our virtue or we are accumulating spiritual merit and carrying out lofty, higher Um, agendas given to us by the gods. Okay, when the Buddhist monk Xuanzang or Fa Xian uh, travels to India to collect sutras, they're they're saying, I'm not just traveling for selfish ends. This is completely unselfish. I'm doing, I'm traveling in in service to a higher, a higher purpose, a higher agenda. When high officials or emperors ascend one of the five sacred mountains, like Mount Tai, or Mount Ume, or Mount Hua. They are going up on the way. They're saying we're communicating with heaven at the top. We're, We're performing sacrifices on behalf of my subjects for a good harvest, for rain, or for an end of a drought, whatever it might be. And as they ascend the mountain, there will be sight after sight after sight with the stele, a stone stele, with characters inscribed on it. And these steles will note the visits of past poets, emperors, officials, philosophers, and masculine gods. Their own ancestors or the ancestors of August emperors, city gods, weather gods. The the sort of gods that a proper Confucian official would sacrifice to and actually believe in. Okay? On places like Mount Tai, You will have sites that'll say, there'll be a placard, there'll be a stele on which the characters will be inscribed as you climb to the top. This is the point where Confucius began his ascent. This is the place where the sage encountered a tiger. And immediately when you see that stele, if you're an educated Confucian elite, you're, 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 you're engaging with the Analects or with, you know, uh, uh, Mencius or Shunzi or some Confucian text that narrates these sort of things, and you know exactly what they're talking about. Or you visit sites where a a famous poet was said to have stood here and composed a poem, and then everyone visits these things because it's been made famous by them. Okay? Uh, If you go to many sacred mountains today, you'll see enormous cliff carvings of Chinese characters 
on which there are inscriptions, and many of these inscriptions will have been commissioned by an emperor who made a visit to the top of the mountain in order to perform a sacrifice to bring rain to the land or whatever it might be, or a good harvest. One of the largest was commissioned by the Tang Dynasty Emperor Xuanzong in the year 726 to commemorate his Feng sacrifice of the previous year. And if you go and visit this mountain where he left his inscription, you'll see a a Chinese character 45 feet tall by 18 feet wide. It's enormous. You can see it from a huge distance away. That's how the educated elites travel. It's in their mind, they say, we never travel aimlessly. We never travel for profit, monetary profit. We only travel in service to lofty, otherworldly aims that are intended to benefit this world. Okay? Um, This is going to be different than many of the other people who travel who don't leave records. And this is why we need to reserve judgment of modes of travel of non-literate peoples, because not everyone is able to leave their own account and from their own perspective of why they did what they did. Another category that I like to introduce here is voluntary versus involuntary travel. All right, because there's a distinction there. Some people have to travel, not because they want to, but because they have to. And some people travel because they want to, not because they have to. And it does influence how the mode of travel that they will take. I think an involuntary form of travel, refugees, okay, peasants for the most part, of war, famine, flood, um, soldiers. Soldiers will travel quite a bit, and they travel involuntarily, especially if they were conscripted. All right? Other involuntary travelers, government officials. They may say, my mode of travel is purposeful and pregnant with meaning, But it's actually not their choice to travel. And some of them will actually lament how often they're on the road and how they never get to go home because they're constantly on the move. That's an involuntary form of travel. Voluntary form of travel, you might have someone like merchants. They don't really leave records of their travels, but merchants travel, you know, in a sense you could say that's entirely voluntary because they want to make money. It's their chosen occupation. Other voluntary travelers, perhaps tourists, Drawn from the educated elite, poets perhaps, okay, seeking out communion with nature on mountaintops. But this this involuntary travel of government officials is one that fascinates me a lot. There's actually a policy that was in place in many Chinese dynasties called the Law of Avoidance, which ensured a separation from an official's home region throughout the duration of his career. In the 18th century, Chen Hongmo, a famous official of the Qing dynasty, said, quote, I have been in active official service now for 20 years, during which time I have hardly ever enjoyed the warm affection of home and family. This is, unfortunately, the way it must be. Those like us who are determined to make something of themselves in this world inevitably face such a situation. Okay, Chen Hongmo was a... I wouldn't say a victim, uh, he was very proud to be an official, but his, his course of where he traveled in his life was determined by the law of avoidance, hui bi, in Chinese, which basically said, in order to prevent corruption, no Chinese official is allowed to serve in their home province or within 200 miles or so of their hometown, in case their hometown was right on the border with another province. 
They wanted to make sure that ink get posted just across the border, even though it wasn't technically their own province. A law of avoidance was designed, it was one of the, the mechanisms that the emperor had to try to ensure that this bureaucracy of civil servants who passed the examination system didn't form their own interest group, their own clique against the emperor in Beijing. And so he tried to keep them moving around constantly. Uh, government officials would be, you know, at the prefectural level, the lowest level, the county level, where they would be posted to, they would only stay in those posts for like a year and a half, and then be moved on to another post. And it could be, you know, really far away, thousands of miles away, then their, 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 their next posting. All right, that was the law of avoidance. They said, we're going to keep shuffling you guys around so you can never get entirely comfortable. You're always going to be a stranger in every post you hold. All right, now ethnicity. Ethnicity um, or you know, culture, whatever you want to call it, could also influence how and when you traveled. Remember the tribute system, Chaojin, uh, to go forth and pay tribute to the Son of Heaven, the emperor of whatever dynasty was in power. Uh, the tribute system was the occasion for travel among non-Han elites. The elites the, the, the power holders of other states who, you know, whose people were not taxed by whatever Huaxia dynasty was in power, um, they would have the privilege, it was seen as a privilege, to travel to the imperial capital you know, at a certain appointed time, once every year, once every two years, once every three years. And the Chinese state, as we said before, would pay for these, for, for these travels, and they were very lucrative because you could sell your goods from your own country tax-free throughout the Chinese realm. Okay, um, and so the Chaojin was a mode of travel that would only be open usually to people of what we might think of as a foreign ethnicity, and those were very far indeed. All right, they traveled thousands and thousands of miles sometimes to get to the imperial capital. Now, how do you distinguish the relative status of someone who travels? who goes you know, far away from his home over great distances. One of the chief ways that you distinguish modes of travel is by your entourage. Think of a presidential motorcade. All right, I'm based in D.C., so every once in a while we'll happen upon a presidential motorcade in which the road's clear, sirens you know, blare, and you have this long you know, train of limousines and cars and motorcycles and you know, whatever that goes on for like five minutes and all business stops. That's, that's an impressive entourage. Okay, all men of status were expected to have an entourage, and it was considered odd if you were a man of status and power and influence and you don't have an entourage. You know, what sort of man would be important and wealthy and influential and then travel all by himself? It would be seen as something worthy of suspicion or commentary. An important person undertakes his journeys with great fanfare in the presence of many people who both see him off and receive him at the other end. Now, this isn't like today, where we have this incredible freedom to travel. You know, and we can go anywhere, pretty much anywhere we want, by ourselves, without any fanfare. Travel was a big deal for a lot of people in the old days. You had to worry about safety, yeah, you, very few people ever wanted to go by themselves. You know, loners were vulnerable on the road in all times and places. And if you had any pretensions to being wealthy or important, you needed to have an entourage. The, the, the travel is a, a, 
a time when you're going to be visible, when you're going to be seen to the people who, upon whom you want to make a big impression. So you need to expend the money and the influence and the, and the energy to make sure your send-off, your travel, and your reception are memorable affairs. And the higher your status, the bigger your entourage should be. Officially, for actual government officials, depending on the rank, an official was entitled to an, an escort, a paid escort of between 5 to 30 government servants, and up to 330 porters and soldiers, depending on how important you are. And these, the, these porters and servants don't accompany you the entire length of the journey, but they may be switched out upon entry into ne- each new jurisdiction. All right, you can imagine if the emperor is actually traveling, his entourage is going to just be enormous. A huge drain on resources and expenditure of, on, on money. Sometimes in the news today, you'll hear about such and such, you know, the president or the president's son or, you know, whatever, the president's extended family, all the expenses that will be involved in security detail for them. All right, same idea. It's very expensive for influential, rich, powerful people to travel because it's a whole spectacle and safety is involved. Baggage was also a part of travel. All right, again, the more important you are, the more stuff you have. Many officials would take entire libraries with them of books. That's a symbol of your, of your educated status, that you're in communion with the Confucian classics and the histories. You might have three to ten cartloads, or if you're traveling by water, several boatloads of just your luggage alone. All right, in fact, there are literary anecdotes about officials who arrived in their new posting with very little baggage, and they were mistaken for someone who was trying to impersonate a high official. That's actually, it was believed that's how you would identify an imposter, someone trying to, to impersonate a high official, is you could tell the difference if they didn't arrive with a huge train of baggage and a huge entourage, because the real official would have those things, an imposter would not. Now, the means of travel... How are you going to travel? Well, there's many different ways of traveling. We're not at the age of motorized vehicles yet. Okay, so clearly planes are off the table, cars are off the table, but you do have horses, donkeys, oxen, or your own feet. All right, you could also have humans are in that category, not human feet, but another human carrying you. And that was the most com- comfortable conveyance in the pre-modern era, to be carried by another human. All right, a sedan chair, a jiaozi. If you were in a sedan chair, everyone knew immediately that you were someone important. All right, this is, this is you know, we're getting back to the issue of uh, modes of travel, the actual um, physical logistics of how you get from point A to point B. Uh, travel could be arduous in the old days, okay? And it was, you know, a big deal. What, you know, what means of conveyance you were able to employ to go to move over great distances. And a sedan chair was considered the most comfortable, elite way to travel. But some people, there was, long before the 20th century, there was a minority discourse that criticized the use of human labor for a sedan chair. Because a sedan chair is just, you know, it's a chair um, surrounded by fabric and, you know, light walls and probably um, sort of an, an, a covered umbrella at top. It's like a canopy with uh, two wooden bars, uh, one in behind and one in the back, laced through the fabric, and then that's held up by probably four, maybe six men, depending on on how heavy the sedan chair is, and then they walk and move you along. One official from the Song Dynasty said, quote, I cannot bear to ride in a sedan chair. 
It is obviously substituting humans for animals. If my feet are tired when I have been sitting on a sedan chair, what about the laborers who are carrying things on their shoulders? Okay, so there were some people who criticized the use of human labor, uh, sort of like in the 19th and 20th century, um, the people who would, uh, the coolies who would pull the um, uh, rickshaws in uh, the 20th century and whatnot would also be criticized. Uh, you know, this is a cruel form of exploiting human labor to have humans pull humans. That's only something that is fit for animals to be doing. However, the goal was still to reflect your status in the public sphere by minimizing the amount of physical discomfort one had to endure. Okay, that's why the most comfortable elite privileged form of travel was to not have to walk and not be exposed to the sun. You're in a covered conveyance that other people move for you. All right, if, you have, if you're exposed, if you have to travel and be exposed to the sun, you'll get darker skin. And darker skin and self-propelled motion were the signs of low-status people. That's what poor people have to endure. They have to walk themselves, and they have to get dark skin by the sun. Remember we talked in an earlier episode about ideas about dark skin and stereotypes about uh, uh, people who were described as having kunlun skin. All right, The whiter the skin, the better, because that meant you worked indoors with your mind and not with your hands outdoors laboring under the sun. Okay, So after a sedan chair, the next best thing, sometimes even better than a sedan chair, was to ride a horse. All right, horses are inaccessible to the vast majority of the population. Horses are expensive. That is the Mercedes of the pre-modern era, okay, is to ride a horse. If someone is riding a horse or even owns a horse, you can be sure that they are somewhere in the top 10% of society as far as their wealth and influence goes. Because horses are prohibitively expensive, involve a lot of care and, up, and upkeep and training and decorations and saddles and all sorts of things. A whole stable, you know, men to look after the horse. All kinds of stuff. Okay? Riding a horse was seen as a way to assert your masculinity and power. And those who criticize sedan chairs as the conveyance of effete effeminate scholars said we should all be riding horses. And horses were the symbol, you know, the preeminent symbol of authority anywhere. A man who is important is at the top of a horse. All right, that's how you assert your masculinity. It was also required for audiences with the emperor. If you had an audience with the emperor, you had to arrive at the palace on the back of a horse. Okay, it's improper for people to, you know, for the highest elites of the land to not be on the most impressive form of conveyance that the pre-modern world had. Now, after sedan chairs and horses, it gets um, pretty degrading pretty fast. Okay, you got donkeys. Um, you can ride on the back of a donkey. Uh, it's not very fast. Donkeys are cheaper than horses. Okay. If you're someone who, if you're an official, if you're someone of high wealth and status, riding a donkey was seen as sort of humiliating. Okay. It meant that you were, had been demoted perhaps, or that you're on hard times and you can't afford horses. Sometimes if your parents had died and you had to go into mourning, state mandated mourning, the, the ritual of mourning for two years or whatnot, sometimes riding a donkey was seen as a way to uh, make yourself humble and say, you know, I'm not going to be so assertive now. I need to sort of be uh, uh, passive and behind the scenes and weak. I'm in mourning. And so you would ride a donkey to sort of symbolize that. Uh, nonetheless, among the poor, 
if you could afford anything, uh, you probably could afford a donkey. That would be your best bet for vast majority of the population. If you can't afford a donkey, then you're on foot. Okay, only the destitute or the pious or the extremely frugal would uh, uh, walk by foot. Sometimes you'll see a governor um, who will try to brag and say, I walked into my post barefoot on foot. That's yeah, just hyperbole. He didn't really do that. But the idea is, is that um, unless you're poor, um, you know, the only times you would ever walk on your feet is because you're trying to show that you're not an extravagant official who wastes the resources of the realms and therefore you walked into your post. But that's highly unlikely that would ever happen. Um, in reality, uh, all the peasants and the poorest people are walking around. Sometimes a uh, middle ground between a donkey and, 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 and uh, walking on your own two feet was to have a cart a simple wooden cart pulled by an animal, whether that animal was the donkey or it might be an ox, uh, whatever it was, uh, an ox pulled cart would be probably fairly common for non-destitute, you know, not horribly destitute, but also not really wealthy uh, peasant masses. You could put many people together in a cart that was pulled by an ox, whereas the back of a donkey is one, maybe two people at the absolute most. What about roads? Well, roads in the pre-modern era, prior to, you know, paving and modern asphalt and whatnot, majority of roads were pounded earth everywhere, not just in East Asia, the whole world. Majority of roads are pounded earth, especially once you leave the city. But even many cities would have pounded earth for their roads. Uh, so they need constant upkeep. And every single time that you get a, a, a rain or a downpour, they would become muddy as hell. All right. Sometimes it could be travel was impossible. If it rained, you simply wouldn't go anywhere because you couldn't go anywhere with muddy roads. Okay. I mean, that gives you an idea of what it might have been like in the old days. Now, rain is no deterrent whatsoever. Um, but in the old days, rain could ruin your entire plans. You're not going anywhere if it rains. Um, sometimes you would travel by water if that was possible, more in the south of, of China than in the north. Uh, but if possible, water is seen as a quicker, um, cheaper, and often safer way of traveling. You don't have to worry about the roads. Um, road conditions themselves were often seen as a symbol of the effectiveness of the local uh, uh, government magistrate, the local government official. All right. Sometimes people would say, this guy must be a good official because the roads in his district are in good condition. And sometimes they would say, this must be a poorly run district because the roads are a complete mess and they're not kept up very well. Uh, anyways, the, the, the ground upon which travel took place was also a symbol of the job performance of an official who worked for the government. During the Song Dynasty, one critic who was visiting a new jurisdiction said, quote, I do not know who oversees the roads here, but as it turns out, they have randomly laid out slabs of stone on the road, all of which have worn surfaces that are hard and slippery. When my porters walk in the mud, they float and sink to its thick depths. When they walk on the stones, they cannot find their footing. They move at half pace with difficulty and distress, unable to sustain their efforts. All right, so that's a, that's a damning appraisal of the local magistrate because the roads suck in his jurisdiction. Another thing you did on travel, most people, even the Chinese officials who would say, I'm not superstitious, most people would pray or offer sacrifices to various gods, travel gods along your route. The god of that river. There'll be local gods for everything, or spirits, if we don't want to say gods. Spirits and sprites and demons. There'll be local mountain gods, local forest gods, local water gods, lake gods, river gods, whatever it might be. 
Um, and many people, even if they said I'm not superstitious, they would still, they don't want to leave it to chance. And if they have any anxiety at all, they'd say, I better go to the local shrine um, and make an offering, burn incense, make a monetary donation or whatnot uh, before I take this road through the forest. I don't want to get killed by bandits or before I get on that boat, I don't want us to drown in a sudden storm. Um, and so uh, appeasing gods, nature gods along your route was actually quite a common thing that you would have to do. It's not just a matter of, you know, how far do I have to go um, and how am I going to get there? It's also you need to budget for the travel gods and the various shrines and temples that you'll need to uh, make an offering to along the way. Because uh, if you don't do that, you're really te- uh, tempting fate. You're testing fate uh, to come in and ruin your trip. Gender. What about women? Well, we know women, in theory, according to the men who left the records, women were not supposed to travel at all. But we know that they did. Okay. When forced to travel, or when they did travel, it was best for women to have a male escort. This was widely believed, and actually it seems like that there was some substance to this fear as well. If you start reading through court cases that survive from various Chinese dynasties, you'll start seeing that a lot of crimes against women, and they can be some pretty horrible crimes, will occur because a woman, for whatever reason, is does not have a man around her, and she is traveling on the open roads all by herself. That is very dangerous to do. Okay, and sometimes in the court records, whenever, you know, some horrible thing happens to a woman and it ends up in the courts, um, and they'll reconstruct the scene, how did this happen? More often than not, you'll find out that for whatever reason, she was alone somewhere, and some, you know, sicko around her used that as an opportunity to prey upon her. The most legitimate form of travel for a woman, if she has to travel, was religious pilgrimage, specifically to pray for a son. Okay, by far, the majority of women who travel, and it's not just like, you know, refugees from drought, famine, or war, all right, women who are traveling who are not destitute, usually they're traveling on for a religious purpose, they're going to a sacred mountain or a sacred shrine or temple somewhere to pray for a son. And the men around her can't really dispute that. They want a son too. And if for whatever reason they haven't gotten a son, and the man can't afford a concubine, to try to have a son with, you know, a second wife, um, then, you know, the next best step is to pony up to spend some money for a pilgrimage to the closest sacred mountain and make an offering to one of the fertility gods at the top in order to get a son. Places like Mount Tai, one of the five sacred peaks, the vast majority of non-elite pilgrims, non-educated pilgrims, the ones who are not reading the poetry or, you know, past visits of Confucius and whatnot, most of those non-elite pilgrims were seeking a miraculous childbirth for themselves or for the women in their family, usually after every other option had failed. Okay, men could sometimes go on behalf of their women to the mountaintop and pray for a son, but it was often seen as more effective if the woman herself went. Okay, and it's actually estimated that perhaps 400,000 peasants would make a pilgrimage to Mount Tai alone. And it could take two or three days to get to the top of Mount Tai along well-trodden paths. Actually, they'd have stone steps. If you go to any of these sacred mountains in China today, um, you'll find out that you're not hiking like, you know, uh, dirt paths like many of us hike today, there's, you know, 10,000, literally 10,000 stone steps that have been built from the base of the mountain all the way to the top. I've hiked 
two of the sacred peaks. I've hiked Mount Hua um, near near uh, Xi'an, and I've hiked Mount Ume uh, in Sichuan province. And that's why my knees are totally destroyed today, because I, that's the equivalent of like 20,000 steps. <laughs> it's horrible for your knees, but nonetheless, okay. Um, you know, pilgrims, pe- people in, in, in this mode of travel would travel, would be willing to travel up to 200 miles to get to a sacred mountain in order to pray for a son. Okay, uh, uh, peasants would actually organize their own so-called incense societies in which they would raise money communally among the village and charge membership among the members of these incense societies until there was money enough for all the pilgrims of the village, all the men and women who needed a son still or whatever, or you want to heal a, a, a terminal illness in one of your kids. Uh, most of them can't afford the pilgrimage on their own, so they would join an incense society to which everyone contributes, and then those who need the pilgrimage the most, the favor of the gods the most, would go on a trip to somewhere like Mount Tai. The challenge and cost of ascending one of the sacred peaks was seen as increasing your chances for a miracle. You've earned it. You've shown your mettle. You've proven your devotion and your piety by making this trip, raising the funds for it, and getting to the top of the mountain in person, not entrusting an intermediary. And if you want to make it even more effective, you kowtow every three feet all the way up the mountain. You stop and touch your head to the ground. And you walk, you don't go up in a sedan chair. That's how you show your, 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 your faith, your piety, your humbleness before the gods. And therefore, they'll be more willing to grant your wish for a son. And walking on foot was seen to accrue more religious merit than any other form of transport. Okay, But still, these female pilgrims were a source of male anxiety, no matter how they traveled. In the end, even if it was for a son... Uh, most men did not like their women being visible to other men. And that's exactly what happens on a religious pilgrimage like this. Proper, virtuous women aren't supposed to set off on long-distance journeys where they will come into contact with stranger men who are not they are not related to by blood or marriage. Okay? And among the commoners, oftentimes the men would go along simply to act as an escort for their women in order to shield them from both real and imagined dangers. There was a widespread belief that when women went alone on pilgrimage to pray for a son to sacred peaks, they would visit the temples, the Buddhist and the Taoist and the local nature god temples, and it was widely believed that the priests and the monks among them, there might be uh, a lecherous one, an insincere one, who would trick the women into engaging in some sort of quote-unquote fertility rite which would involve sex of some sort. Um, and that would actually impregnate her and give her what she wants. Uh, remember, and, and they would think that their women would be duped by these people. Um, and therefore, it was widely believed that when women went on pilgrimage, uh, even if they went in a group of other women as part of an incense society, male escorts should, should still go along with them to make sure um, that... Um, you know, a lecherous monk or uh, a religious practitioner would not take advantage of her, uh, would not take advantage of her desire to have a son. Okay. Um, And going on these religious pilgrimages for the masses, you know, most people, if you're not in the top 10% of society and you're a farmer, uh, for most people, the only time you're going to travel more than two or three miles to the nearest marketplace um, is if you go to a sacred mountain or temple somewhere to pray for a son or for an illness to be cured. Other than that, you're very likely not going to travel farther than two or three or five miles your entire lifetime. All right. Uh, some people traveled a lot 
in the old days, most people traveled hardly at all whatsoever, especially farmers. Okay, and when you did, it was expensive. You had to prepare for it. Okay, especially if you're not used to traveling, it may be easy to be taken advantage of by savvy, you know, uh, innkeepers and merchants and people who can suspect this is your first time. You know, you're a country bumpkin from the from, from the farms, um, and you can be taken advantage of. You're not very savvy to the world. Okay, and when you go to sacred mountains on the way up, you need to prove your devotion to the gods by showing them that you're a charitable person. Uh, beggars would go to sacred mountains, and they thought, thought it was really lucrative to beg for money uh, in front of pilgrims who were going to the top of the mountain, because what sort of of pilgrim who is going to pray to the gods to give you a son is going to spurn a homeless, destitute man on the ground who is praying, who is asking for money to eat for that day. You want to prove your religious devotion to the gods so they'll grant your wish? You need to give money to beggars, so you have to budget for that. It actually had to spend quite a bit of money to get to the top of the mountain because all the beggars would line the route knowing that you were going to come and you would be guilt-tripped into giving them money. There were also fortune tellers, magicians, song singers, musicians, medicine men, sellers of charms and trinkets. As you ascended the mountain, you could be, you know, these are informal taxes of many different sorts that would uh, uh, exert an attraction and allure, especially for someone who had never been out of their village before. So travel in that sense, no matter who you are and no matter where you went, travel was an indication usually of a privileged status of some sort, or at least it was an indication of someone who has money. One by one means or another, they've gotten a hold of money. Maybe they've saved painstakingly for, uh, this money for years. Nonetheless, they are someone who is spending resources, accumulated resources, for a very specific goal. And if you're a peasant, 90% of the population, very likely you're praying to a god somewhere to intervene favorably um, for some sort of calamity in your life, no son or the sickness of a son or whatnot. If you're an educated elite, you're doing it in, in, in service to the government, um, or you're doing it as a wealthy dilettante poet or tourist um, who is interacting with the ancient Confucian classics and, and, and histories and poetry every single way you go. But regardless, when you're traveling, just as within any other sphere of history, what's fascinating to me is how modes of travel okay, are immediately reflected in how big your entourage is, how much luggage you have, where you travel, how you interact with the landscape around you. Um, it's absolutely fascinating how all of these things are different. You think, oh, travel, travel's travel. All we need to talk about is whether you're you know, on, a, on, a, on a horse or a donkey or walking. No, 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 no. There's a lot more things that you can consider when you think about modes of travel in pre-modern China. All right, this concludes our discussion of travel. We're moving on now to the mother of all topics, the official transition point from pre-modern to modern, and the reason why wealth and power is distributed the way it is in the world we all live in today. The stakes could not possibly be any higher. Please join me next time for The Great Divergence. Divergence.